Um, well, Julie, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be on Leswa. Um, when I thought about creating this platform, um, I thought about moments like this when women like myself uh, can have access to you um, and just be inspired and, and completely be represented in the work you do. Um, so I'm just going to start off with some questions. Um, and I think the first one really is trying to understand um, your artistry and your journey as an artist. And, and I believe there are a set of values you, close to your, uh, you, you hold close to your heart as an artist, values you hold to your mind that hold boundaries and of your craft and shape your pieces. So in that spirit, um, I just want to ask you what your, your ethic is as an artist. Complicated question. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I think that um, a really kind of a guiding principle in terms of that is uh, maybe how I was, I feel like it's this constant mining to understand myself and how I am here and how and who I am in the world. Like, I think that's fundamentally part of the core of creating, of the creative impulse is, is uh, this way of digesting and kind of trying to make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that being multicultural, like really being raised in the Ethiopian household with an Ethiopian father, having been born in Nantisawa and living there until I was um, almost seven, and that kind of tumultuous move at that time, during such tumultuous time, was all formative to like how I kind of always tried to kind of reorient myself in the world after the, after coming to the states. And this, this this there was always this kind of sense of like what Du Bois talks about with double consciousness. There was always this sense of being and and finding oneself in one's place, which was at that point in Nancy, Michigan, but also very much aware of this loss of this place that we had come from. It was a very, very different reality, a different kind of family structure. And we left a huge family and new house and all everything that was a part of this very different kind of life and light and being. I mean, I remember being very cognizant of that at seven and at eight of these, these kind of um, bridging these or operating between these worlds. And I think that's also kind of core to like um, one of the reasons that I work in abstraction and core to one of the core to how this this kind of multi-perspectival kind of context that I'm always kind of mining in my work. Mm. I think I we can relate to. I actually came to the states when I was eight years old, so I completely understand the the shift in mindset of coming from you know Addis Ababa to a a country that was completely unknown to me, and not knowing the language, but also just. Um, geography and mindset of you know when you're in Addis there's so much noise around you so many communities so much partnership but then I moved here and I lived my mom was a single mom at that point so it was just like isolation and I really had to adjust to figuring out how to be my own friend so I, I definitely um mirror in, in in that journey of yours and speaking of that um I always find myself reflecting on how those early days are instrumental on my concept of community and what I love about my Ethiopian heritage. And I move through space with an armor of pride and love where I come from. And how have you been able to reflect that purity of your life and your work and your day-to-day personal life? Well, I think that that becomes core to how one orients themselves in the world. And, and then the work becomes this way of processing that. So in, in, in that, the work, and I really try to, I really try, I think this is really important, the work has to, has to be this space that allows for a form of, like, creative invention, right? It's like, so that there isn't um, boundaries or, or restrictions on what might be possible, but that the work becomes a place to kind of investigate what is possible and how do you break away from preconceived ideas and notions, even in kind of understanding space, time, politics, self, individual identity, the role of community, communal kind of uh, intuitive kind of information. How How do you build something that is kind of invented? How can you invent something else that kind of becomes something that can teach you or teach one about oneself and also is is kind of revealing, revelatory? And that that mission in a way has to be boundless like it has to be it's it's it is a liberatory kind of mission in a way and i think that culture and the and and coming from and becoming oneself in in as a kind of you know african 
American, European American, however you want to think about it, when you're raised between cultures and between place, and you have this really strong sense of culture of origin in a way. My, my family was um, constantly both Ethiopian and American. My mother is from the United States. My father is Ethiopian, from Ethiopia. Yeah. His whole family was who we were raised with. And then when we came to the United States, it was a much more just our, our, our um, family of origin, just our you know, um, nuclear family were, were here without relatives. And they immediately connected with all these other Ethiopians that were in Michigan, not just in the city that we were in, but everywhere, all through the, Mich- all through the Midwest, and created a Mahaba right away. That, that was about this kind of constantly building, a, uh, we, there were constant get-togethers, constant gubshas, constant like feasts, and you know, everyone comes over, cooks in the backyard, and then like, there's like, you know, big, big da- dinner dance events, and they pushed this, not only with the Ethiopian community, but with the like, larger Pan-African community that was there, it was a, a university town, so it was a big African study center and a big um, program that the university had relationships all over the continent which was, I think, the reason we ended up there. So there was always this alongside of my experience being raised and going to public school in East Lansing, Michigan. So these two realities kind of always worked and, and morphed into one another and spun into each other. And so that becomes this very kind of guiding way of being. And, and it becomes very natural to like have these places and, and to really have these deep senses of self. But because they were really unable to go back to Ethiopia until the regime changed in 91, that um, 92, they weren't really, that's, I think the first time they went back was 91 or 92. And was the regime change in 90 or 91? I think 91. 91, yeah. And I think that's, that's when, um, that's when they were able to go back for the first time since 77. So it was a long time of my father losing his father, losing brothers, losing uh, um, eventually, um, luckily after that, a sister. But it wasn't, you know, he was able to go back before that. So there's a real kind of like fissure in that narrative, but it was a real grounding aspect of who I am and who um, all my siblings are and how we all orient ourselves in this country. My cousins eventually came and we're all very close and mm. we all really adore Ethiopia, Ethiopian food and, and all aspects of culture and, you know. Absolutely. And yeah. you talk about in your interviews, you actually started off at uh, doing portrait and then you expanded to doing abstract and in your point started reflecting on, you know, creating boundless art. Like, was, were you always inquisitive in doing that or were you influenced by anyone in your family that was an artist or did you just love being creative from a young age? Well, I think, I think it's really interesting. I've, I've always been creative from a young age, but I love that you ask about artists in the family because both my Ethiopian grandmother constantly made baskets mm. and spun cotton and wove and was always, but I have a basket she made me, a Muslim she made me when I was born. I, we have other Muslims in the house that my grandmother made. These are, this is a very special capability and talent, right? So that form of creativity and, 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 Creation was in her, in, in me, through her. And then my grandmother on my mother's side was also a painter and, and, a, and a much more based in kind of technical, technical like um, Renaissance drawing and that form of like really um, acad- like early kind of academic figure drawing and really pushing that. And, work, and she was also a sculptor who worked with lead. And so she really, that form, that, that's in our family. My aunt is very, also very creative. And I think that, that's that's core to like that comes through right it's in it's in that it's in that but i also think that um my family was just very encouraging of whatever we wanted to do and and trying to raise us in this kind of 1970s late 60s um emancipatory free time to to really build like give you space to be the individual you want to be and so in that there's cultural expectations and cultural ideals but there's also um places of like how do you find how do you become a free, strong, and independent young woman? Those were very encouraged. And so our inter- inter- in, 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 um, in internal desires were also encouraged in terms of what we wanted to study. But we were really also, you know, so that was all, I can't not, that has to, I have to give credit to that. And credit to the amount of um, exposure my parents gave us in terms of looking at, taking us to museums, whenever we would go to Detroit to get my dad's, deal with my dad's visa and papers and all that stuff that he had to do in Detroit, we would always go to the DIA or we would go, you know, to the Art Institute in Chicago. But I think like when you're a young person trying to make art, you just have these ideas, preconceived ideas of what that is. And so you do that. 
And so I think like a lot of early work and student work is really about mimicking art, mimicking making art. It's not really inventing art. It's not really making. It's like trying to figure out technically how to do certain things. How do you mix color? How do you make a portrait? How do you do a drawing? And then eventually you really kind of have to take that all apart and unlearn technical stuff and unlearn certain ways of thinking through aesthetics and really relearn that through a different place where you can actually find that kind of complexity and liberation. I find it so encouraging that your parents um, celebrated your inquisitiveness and interest in art because, I mean, as you know, I think uh, pursuing creativeness and, you know, writing and artistry is not something that's supported in our community, especially in African culture. It's more so become the doctor, become the lawyer. And I think, you know, some people hearing you speak and say those things are, are going to be really, um, you know, encouraged by your words of wisdom. So I think that's, that's really great. Go ahead. I think, I, just to add to that, I think that um, you, I, that's really understood, right? Like when you have, when you've made huge um, sacrifices in a way to come here and to, to provide particular kinds of, um, of education and, and, and opportunities to your children, you want them to be able to like not take big risks in terms of what they're going to do. But I have to just go back to like early Ethiopian modernism and where and how creative and forward-thinking and inventive Ethiopian culture of all variations has been. And that, that Ethiopia, I think culturally, writers and cultural thinkers and priests and um, musicians and really kind of wild, inventive, creative, there's always been this kind of profound respect for that world. And I think that, I think that that's really special. It's um, something that I think we can't forget and that we, as, as a community, while we still want a certain kind of stability and pro- forward-leaning kind of, you know, pro- progress, and, and I understand that why, why parents want their children to go into these fields that feel very promising, but we live in a moment of massive uncertainty and doctors aren't getting what they need. Doctors aren't promised the careers that they were 20 years ago. Same with lawyers. And I think that, so I think it's really important to think about how are you, like, who are you? And how do you find your intentionality and your most capable kind of potency in the world in terms of realizing not just yourself, but how you want to build your life and what, how do you want to build the world around you and how you want to contribute to that? I think all of that kind of being in sync allows for a really kind of profound kind of way to build a life. Well, thank you. That, I, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, and to get back into your art, you're known for multi-layered paintings of abstracted landscapes on a large scale. Um, so I was really hoping you can tell us about your art practice and your routine and how, and how you, you settle your spirit to start painting. Like some people have routines to wake up, drink tea, whatever it may be. How do you get in the spirit of creating your pieces? So usually my pieces take um, a period of time, whether it be a year, a year and a half. Sometimes a body of work takes five months, four months. Sometimes it takes two years. It depends on what that body of work is. Mm-hmm. Um, like at this moment, I'm in between bodies of work. I'm about to have an exhibition. All of this work has just left the studio. The studio's in this kind of mid place. And so I come in here and I kind of like rumble and kind of rummage through things. And I'm, and I'm thinking about a new project and I'm trying to come imagine that and I'm like dabbling through things that are here but when I'm in the midst of like a project like once I start being once something's really in going and we have the paintings in progress um, I have different stages of working into those paintings some that I'm working in personally like my hand and I'm lost in those and in order to do that I usually have you know something to drink make sure emails and stuff that I need to deal with are off my plate. And I just kind of go directly into put on headphones, get lost in a podcast and go right into a painting or go into like looking, usually not even painting. And then eventually I might change the podcast. I might put on music, whatever it is. As soon as I get like engaged in what I'm making, which means kind of a disembodied engagement where your brain gets out of the way and you're like, there's some other kind of way. Like I feel like, I can paint, I get lost and I'm in it. Like, and I paint for a few hours before, usually it's a couple hours of that emotion, like really intense kind of engagement. And then it goes and then it's usually time for a break and eat something and whatever. And then again, that same kind of pattern, I put something else on to listen to and go back into it. And so, and then at the end of the day, there's this kind of cleaning up routine that I have where I sweep the floors, I clean up, throw away anything that have kind of gathered everywhere and kind of cleanse the palette, if you will, to look at the, look at what I've done spend some time looking and then usually the next morning come back and it's the same kind of process where it's like, where was I? 
And I usually leave the painting in a place where something isn't resolved. Like there's always this kind of right before, like you might want to resolve it in that evening and I leave it for the morning because then it kind of opens a new point of entry into the painting. Is music um, an integral part of your creation? Do you always listen to music? I listen to either. I listen to something to get lost, whether it's music, yeah. podcast, or book on tape. I listen to something usually. Um, sometimes I really, then that fall, that stops and I'm really lost and I'm working without anything. But usually, because I have other people around and the way that I've, you know, kind of isolated my zone, if you will, is by like having something else for my cognitive brain to get lost in while I'm like intuitively and, and immersed in what I'm doing. I actually want to dig deep into one of, uh, one of your work, and it's around uh, politicized landscapes. And you talk about the concept of annihilation and preservation. Um, and this is, um, this concept is in your, uh, Howl work, which was commissioned for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your thought process around that? Um, and I'm biased on this one because you worked on it in Harlem, uh, and living here, I definitely want to know, uh, and, and if Harlem even being in this space helped you create that space and what it felt like to be among such a historical town. Yeah. So... To give you a context of the time that I was working on this painting, we began the painting the summer before, four years ago exactly, the summer before the last election. Yeah. We were in that church and I had started working on the painting. There were, a re just like there were a string of extrajudicial killings of African American people in this last, the last, this past summer, since George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, the list goes on. There were a string of, of these killings at the, early on at the, during the summer before the election and, and in the spring before the, the election and, before, and just before preceding that. And all of that had been part of this landscape, political landscape we were in. And the, the discourse in the last election was so, it was kind of this kind of, the heightened kind of uh, discourse of white supremacy and fascism was coming back into the conversation and felt like, it reminded me of Toni Morrison's book, A Mercy. It kind of re-brought, uh, like, I, all of a sudden it was like these, 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 this kind of language from a different time was coming back into, like, the public sphere in a way that that language has been there, but it, in that, it hadn't been put into that place. And the language around um, Hillary Clinton and the running of her, her campaign that was so virile and disgusting. And then, and, and you had these kind of mass, you know, these intense protests and riots that broke out after these killings um, of Michael Brown and others. And so I, the, like, that was this landscape. And I was thinking, I was in, working on this huge mural commission. There were two enormous paintings. They're situated in a way that made me think of the national parks. They're situated in San Francisco, the end of the Manifest Destiny project, the end of, like, the, you know, that was the point of, of, of destination, the Westward Expansionist Project of the United States, was based here making this painting and, and thinking about it being based in San Francisco. And I thought of these huge wall, walls where they hang above this big atrium. They feel like these vistas as part of this, nat this landscape, the landscape of the West. And I was thinking of that. So I was looking at painting like um, the American sublime painters, the big romantic landscape painters of the American sublime, and, and really then thinking about how um, the American colonial project is embedded in that. So really these, my interest was the colonial sublime. And that's the sublime in a whole other sense, right? That's like the massive, scary kind of like the, the kind of, the might of the colonial project and the horror of that combined merge into this kind of this, this form of the sublime and that. So these images were about layering these different kind of images of these various protests, race riots and contemporary race riots and, and this in, immersed and they would color this, the, 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 the grounds of these two paintings, which were based off of these kind of romantic landscape paintings of the American West. Mm -hmm. and, and when you, so when I talk about annihilation and preservation, the moment of the Great Migration, the moment of, not, not the Great Migration, but the Great Expansion Project to the West, the moment of that, that was a project of annihilation of a people, of a, of a mass form of genocide. It was also the moment of emancipation. All of these were happening at, at, at around similar times in the 1850s, right? 1865, you have emancipation, you have the Civil War, you have this kind of really other intense effort, right? At the, and at the same time, we have the, what evolves out of that, not exactly the same time, we're talking within a 
you know, 30 year period, 40 year period, you have this annihilation of the people and then you have this big effort of preservation of this land. This kind of to protect this land and this protectorate project. And so like all of the, the contradictions inherent in that, in the making of this colonial enterprise that is our, this country, that is, you know, always referred to as this incredible democratic project. And we see the failures of that in right now, but we're living it. But we also are very kind of immersed in all those contradictions. And we see how quickly certain things can be reversed. And we just watched the Supreme Court justice be installed. We, that will take us back, you know, however many. So we're in a very precarious moment. And I think the painting was being made. It started in the turn that the summer before the election. I actually started my first marks on it after the election of Donald Trump. And that was devastating. And that was the context and time and the, and, the, and in the neighborhood of Harlem and on a block from my house down the street. But those paintings evolved during that time. And they are like... They're, they're titled Howl. They're like titled after the Ginsburg poem, the kind of epic poem based off of the, um, that, that really kind of articulates a particular moment in the, in the, in, uh, in the, in the, in an earlier time of this civil, this effort at, so at, at, at revolution, if you will, or a kind of the effort of um, rebellion and, and change. And it's, and it's this, and, but I felt like that's this kind of constant, Sound of this country and of this landscape and of the many, many, many narratives kind of embedded in that in determining like a, 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 a different kinds of possible futures. So that's kind of the context of that painting. Yeah. Oh, you, that's <laughs> no, no, you actually touched upon my next question, which is you, you mentioned you included distorted images of race riots and street protests in this, in this painting. And you, you were commissioned to do that in 2017, and here we are in 2020 going through the same scenarios that you reflected in these paintings. And I started thinking about how, how your work speaks to the moment, but also transcends the moment. And in 2017, you were working on this piece, but three years later, we're still going through the same things, if not worse situations. So are you conscious of that when you're creating a piece? Are you conscious that it also speaks to moments later on, um, or is the conception of the image, is it changing in real life for you? I think that it's kind of a mashup of all of that. And what I mean by that, I'm not trying to be uh, opaque, but I think that the issues that are core, or the, that have been kind of pushing through work, or have kind of been pushing through me all these years, come from early revolutionary kind of desires from early time in Ansara. Like, it comes from... You know, like th these issues, police brutality, racism, systemic racism, systemic forms of injustice, you know, all these are not new issues. These are, these are, this is, this has been a constant state of affairs for a long time. And, and, and the rise of that happens in different ways, whether it's a legal war, like what, what the U.S. got engaged in with Iraq, whether it's, um, how a revolution gets co-opted after the 2011 Arab Spring and you see what happened in places like Cairo or what happened in like the horrific civil war that, that um, ensued in Syria, whether it's the killing of George Floyd during a major pandemic when you had no other forms of entertainment accessible to anyone, no sports, there was nothing going on, and, so you, and, you, and not so, but also people paid attention to this in a way that the previous times these had happened, we did not have the kind of contagious rebellion and uprising that you saw take place in the summer, this summer. That was like unique, right? That was beyond what had happened at, in, a, in, in any of the times. It became a global thing. And, but to have the kind of the number of cities, the number of towns, the number of small towns where people were up and, 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 and protesting that killing and that form of brutality and really talking, using language like systemic racism, using language like defund the police. This is new. That's a, you know, in, in Black Lives Matter taking on this new form of intensity. I mean, that has been this new kind, like it is morphed that movement. And I think we have had those tendencies, like that is the way this country has evolved. Like it has become the democracy it has become through these kind of collective actions and repressions over and over the this cycle of this kind of moment. And I think we're in a moment that is unique in terms of its precarity and its, um, and I mean it, the, the kind of the global precarity, but I think also the, the kind of vertiginous political landscape we live in that's constantly 
disorienting and constant. And, and part of that is because of how mediated everything, but part of it is also the deep uncertainty that we live in. And it's hard to think about words like progress, like the, like the, those, I, those projects of the earlier, of the last century, if you will, like this idea that something can continue to evolve and get better and things will only improve. That I think is really, people are, that, 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 that's really become somewhat of an illusion, right? Like we, that illusion is kind of broken in a way. And, and there's this other house of mirrors or house of cards we're in that's hard to understand and hard to figure out where you are and who you are. All of that is what I think fuels how, what I'm trying to figure out in the studio and how I try to build these images and, and process these things. There, you know, the way I describe that painting, how is so specific, right? Because it was for commission. It was very kind of, I had a, like, I started with a point of departure, but the painting evolved into something else. Sometimes I don't have that same strong point of departure, but the paintings are made now through this time by me who's living through this time trying to figure myself out and understand this time. So I think in that way, they're always processing um, where we are and how we are, but, um, but they're, they're linked to that for sure. Sorry for the. No, no, <laughs> no. I, to your point about, you know, like you mentioned, things change this year and I have these conversations with my friends and we try to really find a focal point of what was so significantly different this time around for this wave of protest to be global, but not only global for the Black Lives Matter movement, but even looking at our country, Ethiopia, the political unrest that's happening currently with our prime minister and the tribal dissent that's just taking and really um, rising, um, the youth are really the ones that are protesting um, the hierarchy and, and the political state. So I, I think about how that's even the Black Lives Matter movement really duplicated itself in, in Ethiopia in the past couple of months. That's never happened. Um, and I think about how, what about what happened in history for that to happen. And I, I like to attribute that to, to the young, to the young people really taking the front and center. But again, I don't, I think there's multiple equations to that success. So yeah. There are. And I, there are also certain um, there's also stories of caution in that form of gesture, right? Like, so what I mean by that is you really did have a student movement in the early 70s in Ethiopia, right? You had this real, and you had different facts, facets of that. You had the student movement that was, that, and we were in the middle of a Cold War. And so you had that kind of co-option of those movements. And I, and to be honest, I don't think right now is any different. And I think that right now we have to be super careful of how movements and how these types of gestures can be co-opted, right? And how there are many, many, many um, machinations at play that want to co-opt and disrupt that have higher kind of desires or like, um, and what I mean by that is not higher like some, you know, metaphoric thing, but just like they're, 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 they're stronger systemic projects of, in, in, at play that can be very, that can be forces of destruction or construction. We have to be very cautious about what they are. And I think the best way to understand that is to understand our history and to really like know that, not, not uh, propaganda of a particular nature, but really know the kind of real history of who we are, what we are, where we come from, and what built that narrative and, and the very various narratives at play. I think uh, right now I feel like um, you see this kind of amazing protest also in Nigeria against police brutality. It's been amazing, youth-led movement. You saw a women and youth-led movement in Sudan that was amazing, incredible for, from, from the last time. We're very steadfast and, and, and inspiring. But, 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 but that movement was decimated. And I really, I think, that, I think that each situation has to be handled very carefully and to its aim, you know, to its... To its um, to really understand what it's trying to do because you can end up in a deep quagmire like we've seen a lot of the world, what we've seen happen in a lot of the world. Yeah, so I think that the next question is about um, you being named Times 100 Most Influential People, um, which is amazing. Congratulations. Um, and in David's statement, he says about you, her art holds qualities of memory, history, global mobilities, inequities, and sense of place, but through a universal lens. Um, as an artist, I imagine you have to be conscious of representing the sociopolitical climate that is profoundly meaningful, as we've discussed. But how do you guard your art? How do you protect your piece and artistry 
in the cultural moments we're having, um, whether it's the presidency, the killings of black people, the swearing of a new uh, Supreme Court justice, there's so much turbulences. And how do you continue to preserve your peace so you can continue creating? I think that's a super question. Um, and I think, you know, I don't even know if it's, if peace is the right word, but center, right? Like how do you, how do you stay? Because I don't think peace is really possible fully, but I do think, a form of centeredness can be like a form of like orientation in, in all of this. And how do you find a place of, of calmness? And there's several ways. One, I meditate, which has helped me. I've learned to meditate in the last year and that's been enormous through this pandemic, especially. Um, two, through a lot of the pandemic and through the shutdown, I was able to take my family and go upstate and work in a place that um, we, uh, me and some colleagues started an artist residency, and since we weren't having artists in residence, I was able to make work there. And that was kind of, a, you're connected in the world, but you're also out of that. So there's this retreat aspect to that. Mm-hmm. And, I really, and I really think the studio is a space of, you know, I've been painting and working for 25 years in this way, you know, since, since, since grad school. And, it's, and there's this very, you learn a certain type of int- intentionality about coming into the studio and accessing this other place in order to make. And for me, that's, that requires that form of being centered, but it also requires, you know, just, it, it's a practice. It's like, it's like over the years, I've been able to find that space. So I think that, um, that, you know, I read, I pay attention, I do a lot, but I also exercise, meditate, and enjoy my children and, 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 and believe and, you know, study and, you know, and I love creative I love art. I love looking at it and I love participating in culture and the creation of that and, and the discourse. Um, and that's what is, what is inspiring and what pushes me. Yeah. Which is ever more so important currently, right? Now. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree. Absolutely. We, I think we have to find our joy and we have to find our potency and we have to ha- find that we have to mine our histories for that because it's so rich and so potent and powerful and, and no matter, and no, and, and how, how bad, how things look really, you know, how there's always possibilities. That's what I mean. I'm not, I'm not going to use the word progress because I don't believe in linear progress anymore. Yeah. I think that's been unraveled, but there's always new possibilities and, and, and space for invention of that. And I think that's where creative work comes into play. Yeah, I know. Things definitely looked gleam, um, as, especially as someone who is pretty anxious and trying to like really be linear in her planning. I've learned to really take a step back and um, just go with the flow and learn to not, to learn to accept right now instead of what's tomorrow. Um, exactly. And even meditating, I never really meditated. I started doing it um, because I feel really anxious and then I just center myself. Things I never in a million years thought I would do, I started doing. And in that sense, I'm grateful for this time to be at home, working from home and I work in a space, um, I work in pharma, but I work in a space that's doing corporate social responsibility. So essentially, um, we're corporate giving space and we're constantly thinking about how do we support patients um, and give and make sure that individuals around the world have access to medicine. Um, And things like that give me purpose and knowing that although I'm in a space that might not be the, the most friendly industry, I know the work that I'm doing is is impactful, especially because I do work with Ethiopia a lot in, in supporting uh, patients in that space. So that's sort of the things that I, that helps me ground myself, especially right now. Yeah, I believe that that sounds, that's ideal. And meditation really works. I, if you, I mean, I, I started transcendental medica- meditation a year ago and I, it, and I feel like I wouldn't have gotten through this last year without it. Anyway. Because it really does help you focus on this day, you know, and this, this time and, um, and I think that's really what's essential right now is, um, especially with such precarity and political and social upheaval and precarity, it's um, an uncertainty. We, we really, it's the, the kind of ideas of futurity and being able to plan something or, or, or that's, or that's challenged. And so, and, and so I think this, you really have to go moment to moment and, Absolutely. and make really great progress or decisions in that moment, you know, and great, like make, make great work and, and make great inventions. Um, I re, uh, about last year, I, I went to uh, a panel um, called Art Practice at Columbia 
And there was a quote by Audre Lorde, um, and the quote goes, I've come to believe over and over again that what is important to me must be spoken, made verbal, and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. And one of the panelists, something that she said really stood out to me, and she talked about how, as a writer and as a creative, the work often passes through so many white hands before it's given to the intended audience. And it goes through so many white publishers and um, it might be constructed or changed to fit the narrative that they want it to be. Um, So I wanted to ask you how important it is to be persistent in your message, regardless of being misunderstood. Well, I think that happens a lot with abstraction because there is so much space for misunderstanding and flattening. And I think that um, you, that, that, that that can happen, um, that that's part of the terrain, you know, that I have ma- deliberately chosen to work in. I think that, uh, that over time that shifts and that there becomes a kind of focus and, and even understanding. Like sometimes it takes the world time to catch up to what someone is doing. Right. And sometimes the world is there all along. And I think um, there's um, certain ways that artists get pigeonholed or categorized or or limited, and I think you have to be very cautious, especially with criticism and the kind of um, infrastructure of the worlds that we are making in. I mean, there is no question the majority of the art world and the the infrastructure of that art world is predominantly white. I mean, there are big shifts in that, and I've been uh, one of the generation who's been able to be a beneficiary of those shifts, and I see that change that's taken place. Mm -hmm. Um, It wouldn't be the same if I was making work 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and I wouldn't be in the same situation that I'm in now, and I recognize that. But but the reality is that these institutions really are – and, and the critical apparatus around these institutions, meaning the art critics and the art critics who have a lot of uh, sway and capability and, 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 and have been considered important, are also culturally biased. I mean, they cannot not be. And the, the work that, um, and, they, and I think that is where you get the most kind of bruising and the most kind of, um, kind of um, pigeonholing comes from, you know, policing comes from that perspective. I mean, Culture is weird. It's this thing that people want to kind of protect and want to hold for themselves in a way. And there's certain aspects of that. And I think the more you break that open and the more you have a kind of multi-perspectival, multi-dimensional, multi, you know, even as the art world has grown exponentially in terms of its market base, that's been, those have been openings across countries and across economies that are not held tightly by a particular white supremacist kind of project. And I think that while you see a lot of stuff coming up that's like inappropriate, yeah. you see a lot of like, you know, a lot of bad work can be made and, and, and as something expands, there's more room for that. There's also a lot more room for different voices, for different uh, forms of creative work. There's a different space for that. And I think that's really crucial and that that's this new context we're living in and hopefully that'll continue and, and you know, yeah, and speaking of different creative work, I kind of shift, I want to shift our, our conversation to the last bit of the interview, and that's film, which is how I actually um, got introduced to you. Um, a good story of, um, I like to share is in 2015, um, a friend of mine uh, by the name of Mimi Johnson and I had the crazy idea of hosting Different. Um, and we didn't know how to bring this film to Boston um, because it was national and how could we bring a national uh, movie for screening for our community to see it? So we found this platform uh, that said, if you can have minimum 50 people sign up to watch this film, we'll host it. We'll bring it to you at the downtown theater in Boston. And so we said, okay, I don't know how we're going to get 50 people, but long story short, we actually sold out the entire theater, which is about 250 people and had the entire Boston community out and supported us. But more importantly, um, saw the film, which is really important to me because it's something that I am passionate about. And that was the first time I found out who you were and, and your mission behind the work. And I remember I actually tweeted at you and I asked you if you can come and, and be at the screening. And you said you couldn't, but you're really happy that we're watching it. And it's, it's, I was so proud to know that an Ethiopian woman was behind this, this incredible film about early childhood marriage and the important work that needs to be done in addressing it but it's so different from your, your work. So I just wanted to know 
how, why you committed to this kind of um, creative work? Well, there's the one. One was that uh, Z was so compelling when I spoke with him and when he shared the screenplay, and I had known Marat for a while, and they, and it was just such an incredible project, and it had to happen. And so that was one of the reasons that I was involved early on was to help make it happen. Um, I, but I also get involved in other projects. I'm involved deeply with Dennis Hill. I'm involved, and and you know these this work of you know the, the work of that film. The, 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 the effort to support and continue to be engaged with those issues is, is crucial and core to me. And, and I want to continue to be able to, to work and support projects outside of what I do with the studio work. And, I, and, and, and the studio work is a very private project. It's something that happens, it's internal, it's something that creates something that is experiential and it's communal in that sense. But in the sense of actually the work, it's a very private solo pra- practice. But there's an aspect of that that I really engaged in the world and, and, in my, and in my various communities. And Denison Hill, my organization, not mine, but the, organiza- the collective I'm involved with that has an organization upstate, we're a collective. Um, the, the, that's really core to like a different form of community and a different form of, of, of creation and a different form of, of building and thinking and learning. And different was that. Different was a, a way to make something else, a way to contribute to the making of something else, a way to be part of this communal project that was uh, telling this really important historic story that was very beautifully and well done. It was, it's a work of artistry as well as a, a, an important film. And I think it's you know, very beautifully shot and made. And I'm, I'm so happy for both of them and for the success of that film. It's, I think it's an excellent film. Absolutely. And, and it's on Netflix now. And every time I, I, I see it, I tell my friends they need to watch it. Um, for, for And it's shot in so many c- countrysides where I'm sure accessibility was very limited for, you know, producers and creatives. And I know some of the film had to be sent to India for processing. So it just it demonstrates um, how, how important it was to really tell these stories. Um, but the reality of it is, you know, 40% of girls in Egypt are married before the age of 18. And... Um, and also married before their 15th birthday. Even though we're making a considerable effort, I think there's still cultural traditions that um, individuals hold dear to their heart, which is at, at the center of the storyline. Um, so what do you think we need to do as a diaspora community, individuals that have come to the States and understood the power of individuality and, and decision? What are things that we need to do to make sure that we support these kind of initiatives? Well, I think that we have to stay engaged and stay with uh, with our ears and, and 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 feet on the ground in a way, and really be paying attention to what is going on and what is important and what how to support liberatory efforts. But I think like cultural culture is constantly changing, right? Culture is something that it can morph and shift and grow and evolve, and um, and I know that's why Z wanted to make this film by telling this story of of this actual, you know cultural, and he, I think, goes deep into the cultural complexities of what that demanded of various different characters and how difficult it was as a, as a challenge to, that, to those cultural pre- precedents and traditions. And I think that especially when, when, when you have like um, disenfranchisement, letting go of cultural tradition can be difficult because it feels like this core, core project. Um, I think it's very interesting, too, that film has been uh, uh, used by many artists, whether it's Usman Senbin in all over West Africa to deal with f- uh, female circumcision and to bring the conversation and f- into a sharp focus around that and the kind of brutality of that, whether it's um, child marriage, whether it's um, forms of enslavement, to be honest, whatever these, whatever these kinds of violences are that are taking place, that are taking place in the name of culture and tradition have to be, we have to be, hold ourselves accountable for, for educating and for, and for processing and for offering new possibilities and new ways forward that are, that where these, where these are challenged, where these are shown to be, where they're, the problematics of them are really exposed. And, where that has become something that, and I think, I don't even think it goes, it, it can go just on the level of like public violence towards women. I think this is something that we just have to, have to challenge. And I, and I think you see really amazing aspects when you see Maza Ashanafe, who's the, who's the attorney general, supreme justice of Ethiopia now, 
Yeah. Who was a part of, who was the core character in the story. And you see our prime, the president in here as a woman. Who's, it's in, we are in, we, there's, there's a half, more than half of the political body are women. I think that's a really, this is really powerful and potent stuff. And, and we have to do our work here to educate ourselves, educate our communities, educate, keep pushing these projects, and to su- send support and educate and work with the proper initiatives back back home. Like I think that it's it's a it's a mixture of projects and work. Absolutely, I was just going to say I think Avi doing that I think for me is one of the most singular, and I, I wouldn't say progress like you, but I think it's a statement that he made making sure that half of his cabinet actually were women yes. um, and they were holding actual leadership roles and making Maaza, I think uh, the chief justice was such an incredible, uh, I think it's a, it's not for, it's an incredible honor for her, but I think more so for the country. Um, Absolutely. And, and she's, she's a lawyer by training, but she's a woman who collectively founded a bank that sold caters to women. And that on its own creates economic stability and allows for women to be entrepreneurs and all these like systematic issues that hold women back from being independent in these countries. Like she is a champion of that. And I think making her that, uh, making her, giving her that role was such a pinnacle point in his career. So I'm really happy he did that. Um, and I think it's a, it's, it's, it's really a good faith effort at this kind of, um, building, uh, trying to build and reach, bridge build and build consensus and build um, spaces of, of, of trying to think of a different type of future. Yeah. And I think that, that, there's, that it's super complicated, but as a, as a country, there has to be more of that type of, there's more of this kind of efforts at trying to find common ground and trying to find places where we can be constructive as opposed to de- destructive in terms of how we build possible futures. And and I've been very impressed with Abby, and I've been very impressed with um, the, his cabinet and a lot of these, a lot of the people who are working on these things. There's a lot of problems, and there's a lot of it's a it's it's a it's a it's a deep, deep, broken situation, if you will. But I think that there's um, a lot of room for possibility if we can move forward with new futures and really thinking about that as opposed to past grievances in the same way. I think I think like a truth and reconciliation kind of project that can allow for new kind of unifying building would be very beneficial in, in a situation. Well, I always um, end um, with this question from, with my guests, and it's, it's words of wisdom uh, for the young listeners that are listening to you for our audience. Sorry about this noise. No, it's okay. a system here, sorry. Um, what do you think uh, needs to change to give every girl coming from Ethiopia a fair shot at her inspiration? And, and what's your words of wisdom for uh, individuals who, who want to grow up being just like you, who want to be creative in this space and pursue a career just like yours? I think, I think love, unconditional love, unconditional um, support academically, as well as, uh, you know, emotionally and, and systematically. Like, I think that's what's crucial for any girl coming here to study and, to, and to, to, to grow up here. But I think also core to that is a certain kind of freedom. Like, uh, like we have to liberate and really encourage inventive being. And I mean, like, by letting, 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 letting girls study what they want, push boundaries of what they can be, um, imagine, imagine, be imaginative in what their futures can be, and, 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 and have, have be you know, have a lot of agency in creating that mm. and responsibility in creating that. I think what, what I would tell everybody or any young person that's trying to like become, you know, that wants to develop into a creative person or wants to just kind of be, develop as a grow up. Like can we, that's basically what making art is. It's about evolving and, and, and becoming like, you know, understanding who you are. And that's what we are all, whether we are involved in the creative, in creative work or otherwise, we all are involved in, in, in how we build a creative life. And I say this again, especially as the world becomes more precarious and more uncertain. If, we're in a, if, if the United States is in this position right now, this is one of what, we're, what we're, where we thought of as one of the most certain and kind of predictable um, safe havens, if you will, in a particular economic way, and you see the uncertainty and precarity of this country right now, 
my, I would say to focus on the kind of life one wants to live. Focus on who you want to be. Focus on not financial gain, but what you spend your days doing and how, do you, and how is that fulfilling? How is that potent? How is that contributing? And what I mean by that is if you find agency in what you do daily and how you live, you will, you will live in a way that contributes to build this other possibility. And if you're doing something out of a different sense of responsibility, not for that, not for the daily kind of engagement, not for the daily like aspiration, inspiration, and engagement that you want, that, that depth of richness which each person deserves, I think that, that, that you can end up in, in, in with, with a lot of like unhappiness and a lot of challenges. So I just, I just recommend that that anything is possible, you can really invent so much in this, in this, in this current time. And that, you know, to be focused on that, to find, be who you are and be as free as you can be and, and, and live that way, live, live with that. I, I take that advice, even though, you know, I've been here for about 20 years now and being at a fork on a road of my career, what I want to do and thinking about potentially moving back home and contributing in, in the space that I want to be in, I think about life and, you know, making sure that what I love is something that I get to do and not out of necessity, but out of pure passion and, and just joy. Um, but thank you, Julie. This that's, is that's a very special privilege, the privilege, the possibility to come, the possibility to make a life that you can enjoy that not just enjoy, but that gives you potency and that allows you to be a free, like as free as you can be builds and contributes to the possibility of others and it's and it's it is a very special privilege and it's not something to be taken lightly it's something to really aspire towards thank you yeah this is this is really great um i really appreciate you taking the time i know you're busy but i'm looking forward to your exhibition i know there's one coming um i believe in new york pretty soon november so I, i definitely look forward to seeing it um but yeah thank you thank you so much 